You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about your financial plans, are you diversified? After the year we had in 2022, it is a really good question. Is it time you rebalanced or made other adjustments? Help make sure your investing strategy is right for you. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! A big part of avoiding burnout is just simply not trying to take on too much stuff. For me, honestly, at the start of the day, I think, what's my number one priority? And if I get around to it, what are two or three other things I could do? And then I generally leave it at that because I know that trying to take on more stuff is not actually going to help me make more progress. It will just help me get more burned out. Hey, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So we have heard it time and again from the most successful people in the world. They were crazy hours, gave up their friendships, their relationships, kept their noses to the grindstone for years, and look at where they are now. The mentality is basically you will never succeed unless you're willing to give up pretty much everything else to get there. The suffering leads to success. But, and this is a big but, we have also seen That following this mentality, this advice, does not mean that you will get everything that you want. It can cause burnout and depression. It can even lead you to step away from a career that you thought you loved. According to Gallup, 68% of Gen Z and younger millennials report feeling stress a lot of the time at work. And nowhere is this more evident than in the healthcare industry. A recent study from the CDC found hundreds of thousands of medical workers have left their jobs in recent years due to long hours, high turnover, violence in emergency departments, and of course, stress from COVID-19. Less than 30% of healthcare workers describe themselves as very happy, and more than a third reported symptoms of depression. My guest today, Ali Abdal, knows exactly what that feels like. As a junior doctor and recent grad from Cambridge University, he was doing pretty much everything he could to keep up, but still feeling exhausted at the end of every workday and eventually completely burnt out. After turning to the world's leaders on productivity for guidance, he found that the just keep gutting it out mentality was not going to work for him or pretty much any of his colleagues. So he set out to master productivity on his own. Ali's now one of the world's most followed productivity experts with over 4.4 million subscribers on YouTube. Wow. And he has a new number one best-selling book called 
feel-good productivity, how to do more of what matters to you. In addition to his work as a productivity expert, Ali's a medical school lecturer, a junior doctor in the UK's National Health Service, and just for grins, a part-time magician. Ali, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And wow, what an amazing intro. I feel like I should transcribe everything you've just said and use it in our own like PR materials because that was just like a, a great summary of, of the story so far. Well, that's great. I'm glad that we were able to capture it. And uh, kudos to my producer, Haley, who really wraps her brain around these things and gets us in gear. So thank you for that. Welcome and thanks for being here. And by the way, I mean, I just think that your story is so fascinating because I I love people who say this advice is not working for me and decide to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. Well, thank you. So yeah, it was a big, it was a big realization when in, in medical school and I'd been told that the only solution to trying to do more, trying to be more productive was to work harder. Yeah, I found ways to work smart. I think initially a lot of it was like, don't work hard, work smart. But I found ways to work smart. I wasn't being an idiot with how I was using my time. I thought I was pretty good at using my time. But then when I started work, all of a sudden going into the hospital is no longer optional. Like it was when I was a student, suddenly it was like, oh, I'm getting home from work every day and I'm feeling super drained. And even though I'm trying to work smart and also work hard, it's just not working. And so that was when I really sort of <laughs> dove down into this rabbit hole of productivity research to see if there was another way. Yeah. In fact, you said, and I thought this was incredibly telling, you said you enjoyed your training to be a doctor, but you found the actual job utterly depressing, in part because you were constantly worrying that you were going to make a mistake that could kill someone. You said you stopped sleeping, your friendships faded, your family stopped hearing from you, and you just kept working harder. What was it that caused things to finally break? Yeah, so there was one shift. It was 2018. It was Christmas Day. And I remember very vividly that was when there was a lot going on. I didn't get time off because someone had to be on shift on Christmas Day. I was, when I was on the toilet, I was scrolling through Instagram and watching people's Instagram stories of everyone having a good time at Christmas. And I was just like, I'm miserable here in this hospital ward. What am I doing with my life? And then one option there is, let me just quit my job and follow my passion and stuff. But most of us, unless you have a trust fund, you can't just quit your job and follow your passion. And at the time, my YouTube channel wasn't making enough money for me to actually do that. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, given that I'm, I've worked for this for six plus years and I've gone through med school and I know I'm going to be in this career for hopefully a long time, I need to find a way to make it work for me. And I just didn't want to live a life where every day I'd be miserable at work and get home with no energy to do anything other than watch Netflix and then go back to work the next day. That sort of cycle of work home, work home forever until retirement didn't seem particularly enjoyable. So that was kind of the day I decided, you know what, something has to change. And for some people, they would have said, all right, what can I do to change the job? But you actually thought about, well, what can I do to make more time in my day to have the job and also enjoyable activities, right? You approached it first from a productivity perspective. What made you go at it like that? Yeah. So I've always sort of been interested in productivity. I didn't really use the word productivity until people started commenting on my YouTube videos about it. But I was always interested in like doing more stuff. You know, at university, I always, you know, I was running a business on the side and then started my YouTube channel and tried to maintain a semblance of a social life. I always had this thing of if I could just manage my time appropriately enough, then I would be able to do it all. And so that was the angle that I went initially. I was like, okay, I mean, it's, it's just time management, right? 
But then I realized very quickly that time management only takes you so far. And it was, it was a lot less about time and a lot more about energy and enjoyment. And that was when I shifted from kind of being so focused about how can I, I don't know, finagle my calendar so it's a bit more efficient and more towards how can I actually find enjoyment in the work that I'm doing. Tell me about the candle study. I mean, it, it really ties into why enjoyment and productivity are related. Yeah, so this is a study from the 1990s. There's like this puzzle called the candle problem, which is a test of creativity that scientists will often use to try and measure creativity. It's very hard to measure creativity, but if you give people a problem to solve that requires out-of-the-box thinking, you can time how long it takes them to solve the problem, and that gives you a rough index of how creative that person is at that given moment. And so when they bring people into the lab to do the candle problem... There was a psychologist in the 1990s called Alice Eisen, and she split people up into two groups, where one group was the control group, nothing much happened with them, but the other group got a bar of candy or a piece of candy just before doing the puzzle. And she found that, weirdly, the people who got the candy before doing the puzzle, they solved this creative problem-solving task significantly faster than the people who didn't get the candy. So she was like, huh, that's interesting. And her hypothesis was that if you can prime people to feel positive emotions then they're going to be more creative. They're going to think more outside the box. And so this led to a kind of a bit of a wave of research around the power of positive emotions and what effect it can actually have in the real world. It's so interesting. And I guess they've done studies since to prove that it's not just sugar, right? Absolutely. It's not just sugar. It's whenever you do almost anything to prime people to feel good, it boosts their creativity. But also interestingly, it it also lowers their stress levels. So there's another version of the study, which is where they bring people into a room and they tell them that they're about to give a public speech and to prepare for a public speech. Now, naturally, that makes everyone anxious and stressed and fearful. And you can measure their heart rate going up, the breathing rate going up, the sweat in their skin going up. (laughs) And you've got all of these stress markers. They get these people into into a stress situation. Then they split them up into two groups. And one of them, they show them a film or like a movie clip that evokes positive feelings. And then another group, they show something that evokes negative or sad feelings. And then another group gets like some neutral documentary or something like that. And again, weirdly, they find that the people who are primed to feel positively, the ones who saw the nice film, they return to baseline levels quicker than the people who saw the neutral film. And the people who saw the neutral film return to baseline quicker than the people who saw the really sad film. And this is measurable in their like heart rate and breathing rate and skin conductance and all of these markers of stress. And so this led to what psychologists call the undoing hypothesis, the idea that positive emotions literally undo the effects of stress. And that's another really cool thing that shows, again, the power of positive emotions as it relates to productivity, because we all know that like being stressed is not actually the way for us to be more productive or creative. Being stressed is actually kind of completely counter to flow state and being more productive and actually doing the things that matter to us. Right. I mean, if you think about stress and human beings and evolution, right? I mean, stress elicits that fight or flight or freeze response for a lot of people. It just stops them in their tracks and disables the ability to do anything. And it's always, I mean, I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent, but I've always been fascinated by the linkages between things like optimism and resilience and to some degree, I guess, I guess productivity, which is interesting because I've heard you push back on how we think about success. And I think the roots of that pushback is sort of in all of this. When we think about success, the tendency is to think, well, 
once I'm successful and make more money, then I will finally be happy. When in reality, you say you got to get happy first. Yeah, this is one of the, (laughs) I think one of the most important findings in psychology that success doesn't lead to happiness. Happiness actually leads to success. There's a psychologist at Harvard who wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage, which talks about this as well, where they go into the workplace and they figure out, they do a bunch of measurement and they figure out, okay, are the people who are better at their jobs and earning more money, are they happier? Or is it that the people who are happier are better at their jobs and earning more money? And they find, I mean, his whole argument in the book is that actually happiness is an advantage. If you can choose to be happy in your work or you can approach it with a sense of enjoyment, these feel-good emotions, then you are more likely to be successful in your work. You're more likely to get higher ratings from your supervisors. Your peers are going to like you more. They're going to give you more promotions and you're going to make more money. So it's, it's, it's weirdly that way around rather than the other way around. I know you choose your words carefully. And the words that you chose right there were, if you can choose to be happy at work. For a lot of people, I don't think that even registers that I could choose to be happy at work, even if I don't particularly feel passionate about this particular thing that I'm doing. My happiness is, in fact, somewhat at least of a choice. How do you do that? How do you flip that switch to choose the happiness that will then make you more productive and more successful? Yeah, absolutely. So this is basically what the whole book is about. It's this idea that happiness is, to an extent, a choice. Yes, there's some aspect of it that's genetic. Yes, obviously, some jobs are going to be more fun than others. And yes, we all have to do things that we don't enjoy some of the time. But I'm not saying that suddenly you can flip a switch and everything will become a bundle of joy. What I am saying is that in every situation, there is, with a little bit of creativity, there is something that we can do to make it more enjoyable. Can I break it down into the three Ps? So play, power, and people. So play, for example, is, I think, the most underrated productivity tactic out there. How can we approach our work more in the spirit of play? How can we approach it with a sense of lightness and ease so that we take it a little less seriously and a little bit more sincerely? And there's a question that I really like, um, which I actually have as a post-it note on my desk and as a wallpaper on my phone. And it's the question of, what would this look like if it were fun? And it sounds like a frivolous question. What would this look like if it were fun? But genuinely, you can take anyone doing the most menial, grim task imaginable And if you ask them, what would it look like if this were a little bit more fun? You can always come up with ways, even just 5% more enjoyment, 10% more enjoyment. Give me an example. Yeah, absolutely. I've got lots of them. So one of the guys that I interviewed for the book is a chap called Matthew who used to work at McDonald's. Because often people will say, when I mention this philosophy, feel good productivity, find a way to feel good. They'd be like, oh, what about if I work at McDonald's? There's no way to make that feel good. And I'm like, well, I interviewed a guy who worked at McDonald's and he found ways to make it fun. So what did he do? He added play to his work. The way he did that is when he was working on the drive-through, every day of the week, he would be attempting to upsell his customers onto a different flavor of sauce. So Monday was barbecue sauce day, for example. And so every Monday, anytime someone came through the drive-through, they'd place their order, would you like fries with that, blah, blah, blah. And then he would say, and would you like barbecue sauce with that? And they'd be a bit like, that's kind of weird. McDonald's employees never ask about barbecue sauce. Some of them would say yes, some of them would say no. And if they said no, he would say to them, hey, are you sure? Because my last customer said no, but then I convinced her to get it and she was really happy. And then they'll sort of laugh a bit. They'll be like, okay, go on then, barbecue sauce, why not? What this guy Matthew was doing was that he was adding this sense of challenge to his otherwise boring job. By arbitrarily deciding to upsell people in barbecue sauce, he made his job more fun. He made the franchise of McDonald's more money. His manager was super happy and he was having a way better time at work. 
So I think there's little things like that that we can do. I've got tons of other examples that we, that we can absolutely go into. That shows that even in working at a McDonald's drive-thru, which most people would say is not their idea of fun, there are still things that you can do to incorporate play, a little bit of playfulness into it. Well, and play in your example and challenge are kind of equivalent, right? That if you do something that is a little bit challenging to you, you're not going to be as bored. You're not going to be as tired. That brings on this sense of renewed optimism, I think. Are there ways to incorporate play that don't have to be as gamey or as in your face? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I realized is I used to work in the hospital. So in operating theaters, the best surgeons were the ones that seem to always have background music on, weirdly, like upbeat background music. Like even in the middle of a life and death operation where a patient is bleeding out, the surgeons who I looked up to the most and who everyone seemed to respect the most, they had lighthearted background music and they would crack jokes occasionally, even during the middle of a life-saving operation. So this is you know, completely the other end of the scale. But they realized that with a bit of music in the background and a bit of jokes every now and then, there's actually this sense of lightness that descends upon the operating theater and people perform better and are more likely to spot mistakes and are more likely to speak up if they notice anything weird is happening. People are more likely to do all those things and perform better if the environment is a little bit lighter. And so I noticed this. I started incorporating background music into my daily tasks. So when I was working as a doctor in a cramped doctor's office here in the UK, you know, there were these are tiny. Our healthcare system is publicly funded. And so it's like we don't have great facilities. So there's no air conditioning if it's super hot, et cetera, et cetera. So I just got one of these little Bluetooth speakers from Amazon for like $10. I put it on top of the, the light on the ceiling and I would just play music from the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Pirates of the Caribbean. And it would just immediately make whatever I was doing just that little bit more fun. And then the seniors would come in. They'd be like, huh, that's a bit weird. We don't normally hear background music here in the NHS, here in hospitals. But then they were like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you know, why not? <laughs> and that was just another way in a less kind of in-your-face gamey fashion to just add a, sprinkle a little, a little bit more fun into what was otherwise a fairly boring task. I can relate because I'm a runner. And for a long time, I was running with audiobooks, which were, they kept me going because I wanted to hear what happened in the next chapter. But I started in the last couple of years running with 80s music. I went to college in the 80s. The music of the 80s, I think, notoriously bad, but it happens to be my music. And it makes it a much more enjoyable task. So I totally get it. The other two Ps are power and people. Ali, we're going to take a very quick break, but when we come back, I want to get to those. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you take a look at your financial plans, are you diversified the way you want to be? And when is the last time you rebalanced your portfolio or made sure you're invested in the assets and allocation appropriate for you? Look, we all need to make tweaks and adjustments to our financial lives, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones. Thankfully, Edelman Financial Engines can help no matter what change your money might need most. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back with Ali Abdal, author of Feel Good Productivity. So we talked about play and my terrible taste in music. Let's talk about power and people. What are the linkages there that can get us to greater happiness and then greater productivity? Absolutely. So power is the second P, the second thing that makes our work more energizing and enjoyable. And power is this sense of 
feeling powerful, feeling empowered, which is usually a combination of taking ownership over something, like feeling like you have control, and also a sense of feeling like you're making progress, feeling like you're leveling up. So that combination makes up power. And we know that from the research that when we feel a sense of power in whatever we're doing, we're more likely to be intrinsically motivated to do the thing. This is as distinct from extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is where you're motivated to do a thing because someone's giving you money or because you're going to get a grade or a trophy at the end of it. You're doing it for an external reason. Whereas intrinsic motivation, you're doing it for its own sake. You're doing it because you enjoy it. You're doing it because you want to, because it feels meaningful to you in some way. And we know that for things where we feel the sense of autonomy and the sense of mastery, the sense of like control and progress, that feeling of power makes things way more intrinsically motivating. So like practically speaking, what this looks like is, for example, most of us don't really have control over what specifically we're doing at work. If you're an entrepreneur, yeah, you have a lot of autonomy. But even if you're not an entrepreneur, you have to do what your boss is telling you, but you can generally choose the way that you approach the process of it. You can choose to a find enjoyment in the process, but also make the process more enjoyable, more interesting, more effective. You know, I used to type out a lot of medical notes back in the day when I had a real job. And initially I just sort of followed the script and did the thing that the doctor before me told me I should do. But then I realized, hang on, I can take ownership over this. These are my medical notes. And even though they're just medical notes and it's not that hard writing medical notes, I was like, it's going to be my mission to make these the best medical notes that the senior has ever seen. So I learned like the keyboard shortcuts and our epic software to make them bold and have different headings and occasionally have different colors. If like a blood result was off, I'd color code it in red. This was like, no one was doing this. And I was just like trying to make the notes look a little bit prettier. I was taking ownership over those notes. It was a small thing, but that gave me a sense of power, a sense of ownership, and that profoundly boosted my motivation and my enjoyment in the job. And I became more productive and the senior started saying, oh, wow, your medical notes are really good. And then they would want me to be the doctor to come with them on the ward rounds because they knew my notes were good and I could type fast. So all of those things actually improved my performance at work, but they also helped me have a way better time. What I think is interesting about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation is that I've found often you you have to start with the extrinsic, right? There has to be some sort of, you want to be better at work, right? You want your superiors to call on you to go on those rounds. And that's motivation from the outside. But if you do it right, it'll often morph into intrinsic motivation, right? It's when you are going on a diet because you're going to your high school reunion and you want to get into a particular dress or I want to get into a particular dress, right? And I'm going to lose two pounds to get me into this dress. I'm doing it for an outside reason. But once I start to feel better about how I look and how I feel, then all of a sudden it's intrinsic and it's easier to stick with. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. There's extrinsic, there's intrinsic. And just because we're on this topic, there's also a third form of motivation that most people probably wouldn't have heard of. And that's identified motivation. So if we take this example, like I, this happens to me with going to the gym, for example, it starts off extrinsic because I'm like, oh, I want my biceps to be bigger or whatever. I want to get those six pack abs. It becomes intrinsic. Like I start to enjoy going to the gym, but then there comes that point where it's cold and it's wet and it's gray. And even though I know it's going to be fun, it's not going to be that fun. And so now there's that crossroads of, okay, what form of motivation? Even when we're using intrinsic motivation, stuff stops being fun some of the time. It's not always going to feel good to go to the gym. And that's where we bring in identified motivation. This is sort of in between the two. It's like a good form of extrinsic motivation. This is where I motivate myself to go to the gym because 
my identity is someone who values health and fitness. And I say to myself, I'm not doing it just for the aesthetics. I'm doing it because I personally value being healthy and fit, and therefore I'm going to go to the gym. And so really I find like the, the masters of kind of consistency are the ones who kind of use a little bit of intrinsic motivation, but also a little bit of identified motivation some of the time and play around with these two levers. Oh, that's fascinating. And I have never heard of it. So that was that was a new one. And I'm going to tuck it away. We are recording this podcast, Ali and I, on January 25th, which means I am six days from the end of dry January and getting toward the very end of my extrinsic and even intrinsic motivation. So I'm going to remind myself that I value being that person who could not have wine for an entire month. Mm until I get to February. There is another form of motivation while we're on this topic that also might be interesting for you. Really? There's four? Oh boy, okay. There's four, yeah. Most people have heard the, the first two, intrinsic and extrinsic, but there's two in the middle. So we talked about identified, which is I really value my health, therefore I'm going to continue dry January or whatever. But then there's also introjected motivation. Now, introjected motivation is if you said, if I start drinking again, I'm going to feel such shame and I'm going to be a terrible person and I'm going to... I, I will have failed and ugh, I, I, can't stop, I can't stop drinking again because then I'll feel really bad. That is like a negative form of extrinsic motivation and we don't want to do that. Okay. A lot of people default to that because they think that this negative, I'm going to beat myself up if I don't do this thing or I'm going to let people down. They think that's effective. And yeah, it works some of the time, but it makes you feel really bad and it means you really can't stick to the thing if you're just going to flagellate yourself. I think, yeah, identified motivation is positive extrinsic motivation, but introjected motivation is sort of the beating up kind and we definitely want to avoid that kind. Okay. All right. No beating myself up. I got it. The third one on your list is people, right? And people are important in this equation. Why? Yeah. So we've all had that experience where, you know, there are some people that you hang out with and you leave that conversation or that interaction feeling really energized. But we've also all had those experiences where there's some people you hang out with and you leave that conversation or interaction feeling really drained. There's this thing that psychologists call relational energy. And it's this weird form of energy that we get from the people around us. And so when it comes to people, we want to try and tap into the source of relational and relational energy. We want to try and figure out like, ideally, who are the energizers that we can be around where just being around them and doing our work around them will help boost our spirits. When I was in med school, I sort of realized that studying on my own in my room, on my desk, yeah, maybe I could focus a little bit better, but it was super depressing. And that meant I was super inconsistent with it because we don't like doing, the, doing things that don't feel good. But if I would go to the library and invite some friends along, now all of a sudden it's become fun. I've tapped into the energizing power of other people. During the pandemic, when I was writing the book, obviously I couldn't do this because of lockdowns and, and stuff. And I discovered this thing called uh, London Writer Salon that hosts completely free Zoom co-working sessions four times a day. And so I'd hop onto those sessions and there's a few hundred writers from all around the world and everyone's just working on their own thing. But even just seeing a screen in front of you with 50 faces, all like knowing that you're all doing the same thing. Again, that made writing the book in the middle of the pandemic, where it was kind of grim, that made it a lot more fun. It made it a lot more energizing. So there's definitely something we can do around that is sort of tapping into the power of other people. For people who are still working remotely and are feeling a lack of people, is that how you suggest getting more people? I mean, we, we were talking about the gym. This is why I now go to the gym. I go to the gym because I don't have an office to go to anymore. I see my colleagues on Slack or on Zoom. But when I go to the gym in the morning, I see people and I need that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the remote stuff makes this sort of social connection thing quite hard. What I personally do is I 
wherever possible, I will try and go to a coffee shop or a public library or a co-working space because just the fact that there's other people around makes me feel more energized in my work. If that's not possible, then yeah, the Zoom co-working sessions, trying to get a group of people at work together to do like a Slack huddle or something like that. We do that within my team sometimes. If someone's just sitting there working, they'll just turn on a Slack huddle and then other people can see, oh, there's a huddle happening. Yeah, why don't we join? And now everyone's on the same kind of Zoom call type thing. Sometimes we share the same music. So if it's me, I'll put on Lord of the Rings in the background and share my sound and everyone else can work along to the Shire theme tune. And just little things like that, even in a remote world, we have found really helpful to help keep that connection up between team members. So we solve our happiness problem with people and power and play. And that leads to greater productivity. Where's the line? I mean, where is... Where is a good amount of productivity that you feel good about, that you still get to have a life, and that you're not approaching burnout? Yeah, this is the really important part of it. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this problem where you enjoy your work so much because you've got play power and people in it that the problem becomes stopping rather than trying to do more of it. So how do we do that? I think one of the big things is that we've got to recognize, firstly, that the to-do list will never be empty. This is something that I really realized when, when I was working in the emergency department. Like in my first couple of days working in the emergency department, I was like, you know what? I'm saving lives. I'm going to do the thing. And I was like, there's all these patients in the waiting room. And if I just see my patients fast enough, then we'll be able to get through the list. And then the waiting room will be empty. I did this for a day or two or three or four. And the waiting room was never empty. It didn't seem to be making a dent in the waiting room at all. And I mentioned this to one of the, one of the seniors, one of the consultants. And he said, oh, yeah, it's your first week, isn't it? <laughs> and he said something that will stay with me forever, which is that, look, the waiting room will never be empty. You're never going to make a dent in the list. So all you can do is show up, triage, see the patients who are the highest priority, take your break every four hours because it's legally mandated and also really important, and then go home at the end of the workday because you've done what you can and you have seen the most important priority patients. And I think about that a lot, even outside of the context of medicine. We all, like literally everyone listening to this, we all have an infinite amount of patients in our waiting room. We have an infinite amount of projects we could be doing. There is always more house renovation you could do. There's always more you could do with the kids if you have kids. There's always more hobbies you could take on. There's always more ways you can grow your business. The waiting room will never empty. All we can do is show up <laughs> in our allotted time that hopefully is a reasonable amount based on the amount of work-life balance that we want and just do the things in order of priority. And honestly, if we just do things in order of priority and don't let, you know, those little things, those patients in the waiting room that really don't need to be seen. You know, it's just a guy's a bit drunk and he's a bit obnoxious. He's just trying to get your attention. If we don't let our high priority patients get derailed by the ones that are just screaming the loudest or just trying to get our attention, if we just keep on doing the high priority tasks one at a time, honestly, that's how I found to recognize that a big part of avoiding burnout is just simply not trying to take on too much stuff. For me, honestly, at the start of the day, I think, what's my number one priority? And if I get around to it, what are two or three other things I could do? And then I generally leave it at that because I know that trying to take on more stuff is not actually going to help me make more progress. It will just help me get more burned out. I like that. I'm a journalist. That's my training. And that's how we approach life. What's the deadline? When do you have to meet it? What's the priority? And what comes after that? Thanks for this great conversation. Where do you like to send people to buy your book? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's available everywhere books are sold. But if you like, you can check out the website feelgoodproductivity.com and that will have links to Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, wherever you happen to be listening to this. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back with Julia and your mailbag. Let's talk retirement, shall we? 
Did you know that women are more likely to outlive our retirement savings than men are? That's why having consistent income, a paycheck for life, in addition to Social Security, can be a real game changer. That's where annuities come in. If you're not familiar with annuities, the concept is essentially that you take a chunk of money and turn it into a paycheck that you can start drawing on when you want to, next year or next decade. The ParityFlex multi-year guaranteed annuity available from Gainbridge offers an impressive 5.95% APY long-term, but it also offers flexible withdrawals for unexpected expenses. The ParityFlex multi-year guaranteed annuity can be an important part of your financial future as you work to build a retirement you love. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for important information. This is a paid endorsement. Here's one of my money rules. If you can't afford to replace it, insure it. If you can afford to replace it, don't. This rule applies for pretty much all kinds of insurance, and you'll make the right decision on life insurance if you think about it as income insurance. If there are people who depend on your income and they wouldn't be able to replace it without you, buy the life insurance. The good news is life insurance is hugely affordable, but it's one of those things that definitely makes sense to shop around for. The differences can be great. Start by getting a free quote from Select Quote. SelectQuote has helped people save 50% or more by shopping highly rated insurance carriers for them. In fact, they recently found a 40-year-old woman a $500,000 policy for only $16 a month. They do the legwork and the research for you. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million one, their licensed insurance agents can help you find the right policy for you, for your family, and for your budget. If you have people who depend on your income, take a couple minutes today to get your quote. Quotes are completely free and quick to calculate. Go to selectquote.com. That is selectquote.com. Details on the sample rate at selectquote.com. We are back with our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining us. So, Julia, do you find that when you're enjoying a particular task at work, you are more productive? Probably. I think that's really true for me. When I get these passion projects, when my boss sort of says, oh, run with it, yeah, I could get something done like in a day. And when I'm working on like a report or something, I take the whole week. When your boss says run with it. So it's not just passion, but it's like it's yours. You have the autonomy. Yeah, yeah. Like Allie was saying, I mean, it's all these are all components of the same thing. I was trying to think about when I when the day just flies for me. Mm -hmm. And often it's when I'm reporting a story. Yeah. When I'm still like on the phone with really interesting researchers learning about their work and taking in new information, that's kind of the thing that makes the day fly by for me, where I sort of feel like I'm the most productive and I'm I'm in the zone. But I guess it's different for everybody. Anyway, I love that conversation with Allie. It was a good one. Yeah. Hope we get the chance to talk to him again. We've got questions, so let's take them. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Landa. She writes, Hello, Jean. I should have asked this question sooner, but better late than never. How do you recover mentally and emotionally after a long period of unemployment or diminished income? Context. 
I'm a single, self-employed mom who's had two long periods of almost zero income in the last five years. The second crisis should be over soon, and I've had my emergency fund to get me through the worst of it. The problem is that I'm emerging from this situation with feelings of bitterness, anxiety, and helplessness, even though everyone thinks I came out of this practically unscathed. From my point of view, I fell behind on paying debts and had to rely on my credit card for the last three months. Money I was owed never materialized, and I found little support from friends because they claimed I was a strong woman and hence not needing a shoulder to cry on. Any insights or advice would be very much appreciated. Thanks, Landa. Well, first of all, Landa, if you had an emergency fund that got you through the last five years you set yourself up incredibly well, right? So I just want to point out that for many people, this would have taken them down. And although I hear what you're saying about your feelings of bitterness and anxiety and helplessness, this did not take you down. You weathered this. And so... Sometimes when we have a negative radio playing thoughts in our head, we need to arm ourselves with the data about what's true in order to move to the next phase. You know, what's true in this situation is that despite feeling yucky about it, you actually did weather it. So I want you to hold on to that positively. As far as dealing with those feelings of bitterness and anxiety, I think I would do two things. First of all, I might find a therapist. Once you're employed again, once you feel like you're flush enough to be able to pay for therapy on a short term or even an ongoing basis, I would do that for a while. I'd explore why this happened. I'd explore why it went on for such a long time. I'd explore why you need to or seem to present such a strong picture to the outside world when, in fact, you truly do feel like you need help. And then I would take your closest friends and I'd really pose the same question to them. Sometimes people see those of us who keep a stiff upper lip and keep it all inside as being really strong, even when we're feeling like we're crumbling on the inside. I'm a person who is kind of like this. I don't tend to show how I'm feeling to the outside world. And as a result, when I'm feeling down or when I've had a real disappointment from work, people just sort of figure I'll be okay because I'm always okay. When you're not okay, there needs to be a certain group of people, a certain group, a close cohort of your, your trusted friends that you can really tell you're not okay. And If they're good friends, they should step up and they should be able to support you during those times just like you do for them. So that's how I would approach this. I mean, Jules, you're you're a really good friend to 
your girlfriends, but by the same token, I know that they are really good friends to you. Do you tell people when you're down? Do you tell them when you're vulnerable or do you tend to keep it in? I do a little combination of both. And I think there are also, you know, there are people that I tell and also people that just know. And I think that's like one of the things that I love the most about Adam is that he can sort of just read me by now. I'm a very, oh, yeah, it's fine. I can do it. I got it. No problem. Let me take care of it kind of person. And just last week, I had a conversation with my two bosses because they keep flagging to me like, hey, you you good? And I'm like, yeah, I got this. And they're like, you don't communicate. And I find I cried, which Adam says you can't cry in the workplace. But as I told my bosses, I'm a Pisces and they just need to ignore my tears. They just my tears just come out sometimes. I am a Pisces. I can't help it. They laughed. So that like broke the ice. But I think because I'm so, you know, happy-go-lucky that they finally had to be like, we know you're not, we know you're drowning, but you have to tell us you're drowning. So I think I'm a little bit of the balancing act, and it's good to find people that can read you, but also it's not anybody else's responsibility. So I am trying in therapy to figure out how to communicate that as well, because I think a lot of people put the burden on other people, myself included, to know. And that's not fair to those people because I think those people would be there a lot more if you told them, hey, I really need you right now versus when you expect them to be there. And then you're just disappointed, right? If they're not, like, how did they know? Maybe they had a crazy day too. So that's my two cents on that. Great answer. Love it. Let's do one more. All right. Our next question today comes to us from Lily. She writes, hello. I am a grandmother of 85, and in 2003, I bought a large number of I-bonds, and the beneficiary is my son. I had thought that I could use them for my grandsons for funding college, but I am finding out that this may not be possible. These I-bonds could really help my grandsons, who could use the funds to pay for their college education. But it would put me in a much higher tax bracket if I changed them out, plus impact my Social Security, especially my Medicare. Is there a way somehow that my two grandsons could possibly use these I-bonds without my having to pay the taxes that are now quite high on these I-bonds? Can they be transferred somehow to pay them for their college education as well as a master's? Any information that you could give me would be so greatly appreciated. I do receive your newsletter, so that is how I'm able to email you. Thank you very much in advance, Lily. Oh, Lily. So sweet. We love a high-tech grandma. We do, right? 85 and emailing. So, Lily, this is fantastic. Look, I looked at your question. I actually thought I had a solution because I-bonds can be used to pay for education without having to pay the taxes on them. But the person whose education that you're paying for has to be a dependent. There are some income hurdles that you have to clear, which I think at your age, you'll probably clear. But the problem is the person has to be a dependent on your tax return. And clearly, your grandson is not a dependent on your tax return. So you are not eligible for that exclusion. The problem here. And I think a lot of people who are not yet on Medicare don't understand it, is that the interest on these I-bonds, the proceeds on these I-bonds is treated as 
ordinary income. And because it sounds like it would be a substantial amount of ordinary income, it could push you into a higher tax bracket. Then we run into a Medicare problem that the financial community refers to as IRMA. It's the income-related monthly adjustment amount. And it's an amount that you have to pay in addition to your Part B or Part D premium if your income is above a certain level. And it can send your Medicare monthly premiums soaring. So just for example, if your income as an individual is below $103,000 in 2024, your monthly premium is going to be $174-ish. If your annual income goes up to, say, $129,000, that monthly premium almost doubles, goes to three fifty, dollars And it, it just goes up from there to the point where it could hit almost $600 a month. That's substantial, so clearly you want to avoid that. I don't know what your income is, unfortunately, Lily, but my suggestion is maybe you come up with a way to cash out of these I-bonds, change out of these I-bonds over a period of time so that they don't impact your income. And if your grandsons are not able to use the money in real time, then they can use that money to repay their student loans over the short term. So between a combination of annual gifting and talking to an accountant about the right way to get out of these bonds, I think that you will be able to accomplish it. You just need to be able to do it over time, and that's going to require a call to your tax advisor, but it shouldn't be impossible. And thanks so much for the question. Thank you so much for reading the newsletter, and thanks for being a part of our community. Jules, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. And if you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. We are going to take a quick break. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it, Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with your money tip of the week. More money equals more happiness? Not necessarily. Studies have shown that people with higher incomes do tend to be happier, but... As you climb the income ladder, it takes more money to get the same high. In other words, there's a big difference from getting bumped from $15,000 a year to $30,000 a year versus 60 to 120. And some of the biggest happiness boosts are related to pay raises that 
eliminate extreme financial stress, like being able to cover your family's monthly bills. Other people who've gotten big raises recently say the money hasn't changed their day-to-day lives or hasn't provided them as much joy as the things in their lives that have nothing to do with money. If you did get a big raise or big bonus this year, my advice is slow it down. Slow it down and take a breath before you spend it, whether you're looking at a nicer car or a bigger house or an addition to your closet. Take it as an opportunity to beef up your savings or pay down debt. Both of those things are proven stress reducers that actually will add to both your feelings of happiness and control. For more timely money tips like this one, subscribe to the Her Money newsletter at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 